Hello, welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. We are here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. Welcome back to Unconsciousness, uh, and we are joined by Mark Mitten, a fabulous magician, uh, Jay Geed, a fabulous brain scientist, and and David Edelman, a fabulous everything else, including <laughs> musician, violinist, anthropologist. Get, you know, take it away. Leftovers. Yeah, yeah and, and, and this is just sparking beautifully, and let's bring it back. Uh, uh, what would you like to say? What's on the top of your consciousness right now? Well, I guess, um, among other things, one of the things I, I, I've thought about a lot is what level of resolution is relevant in biology? What biological level of resolution is relevant to the study of consciousness or conscious processing? Where does the, the magic, please excuse <laughs> the expression, where does the magic happen? Um, is it relevant to talk about consciousness simply as the nattering of neurons, the communication? Um, oh boy, I just invoked a Spiro Agnewism. I apologize for that. Um, but is it there? Or is it something else? I mean, certain people, certain theories have suggested that mm. it's somehow quantum-based, that somehow it's not even at the level of chattering neurons, that it's it's somewhere down in the microtubules, in the cytoskeleton, the, the skeletal elements of the cell, and has to do with some kind of quantal computation. So where does it lie? I mean, where where does the important level of resolution, where should we concentrate our efforts if we're trying to pin down the phenomenon and the, the biological mechanisms underlying consciousness? Can I say me, me, me? Absolutely. Well, hey, sure. <laughs> uh, this is not, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but um, what do we really know empirically? But where is consciousness found? Empirically, is there consciousness in quantum mechanics? Is there consciousness in some magical mathematical expression? Mm. Or is there consciousness there pretty much in, in a bloody everyday fashion uh, in the biosphere, starting, let's say, how many feet underground? I don't know. Mm. Uh, and then in the air breathing and the water breathing uh, biota that we know the, the biological organisms. And then if we go to the top of the atmosphere, we have drifting bacteria and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but once we get to really cold space uh, and really Lots of uh, lots of radioactivity that's going to call that's going to kill uh, bacteria uh, and so on, uh, and the absence of air, all that kind of stuff. Do we find consciousness? And my uh, uh, kind of very conservative claim would be that the answer is no. We don't know of anything. 
Now, there may be, you know, plasma, conscious plasma organisms in the sun. Mm. There are all kinds of possibilities. They're very intriguing possibilities. And maybe at some point, you know, we'll just bump into them. Uh, but so far, as far as I know, we have not. And it's possible that, um, you know, that, that there are physics projects that have already found ways to do this, but it's at least not well-established science. And if we take that very conservative, very narrow uh, uh, viewpoint, then we have an envelope uh, around the planet uh, that appears to be quite thin and that has a thriving life. And in fact, it keeps on expanding, of course, because we get so-called extremophiles mm -hmm. uh, in places where they were never supposed to live, uh, but they are there and, and it's, a, it's an ecosystem. Uh, so I'm, I don't want to rule out any ecosystem, but outer space is not a friendly ecosystem for the biology that we know. Uh, so uh, so my, my suggestion for confining within reasonable bounds, what we really know would be that, well, let's look at the biosphere and then we'll learn more as, as we look, you know, you want to look at where the light is. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's part yeah. of me for... Um, uh, my my uh, it concerns are, I think, connected in some way as a developmental neuroscientist of, of you know, when does consciousness come on board in terms of um, uh, what are the minimum necessary uh, and sufficient, you know, components for that, I guess. Um, the way I would see it, like a neuron isn't conscious, but a group of neurons are. And that's that's where the magic, you know, what would lie in terms of somewhere between, you know, a, a neuron not being conscious, but a collection of neurons being conscious is one of the great mysteries to uh, all of science for me. But I think that we have now increasing better technologies and and more people, I think, uh, focused on this problem that, that I think we can make progress into uh, finding some of that magic between a neuron and a collection of them. Mm -hmm. I, I think about how everything comes together and, and you know, terms that came up when we were talking were terms like context and uh, connectedness and interconnectedness. And and that's something I always think about how how easy it is to frame the problem in in terms of ideas, you know, but then also as a, as a magician that takes action really seriously, then I, I think about that and I think about interaction, you know, and, and the social issues like the, the group of neurons versus the neurons. But then I also think about how, you know, we, we combine these different kinds of information sometimes with, you know, just very lightly, you know, like we combine cognitive information with physical interactions and physical gestalts and, and uh, different kinds of uh, environmental information. And when, when actually those things are so different, you know, as, and, and, and then also in certain things, like once you're physical, you are social, right? So it, those are the kind of things that I, I think about. And, and then also, also as a magician, I guess I think about how to fake consciousness. So like we were talking earlier about the ELISA experiments about like how, um, the, uh, what was the professor's name at MIT who, who created the, the simple test you know, where he took information and fed it back. It's just the right... Uh, yeah, computer scientist in the 60s, but I can't blinking on his name now. Right, yeah. and forgive me for not thinking... But I should say, not a psychologist, uh, you know, a computer... A computer scientist, and yeah. it was an information, and we were talking um, earlier about how what's interesting about that to a magician is that 
magicians have used a similar technique, which is basically collecting information and feeding it back in just the right way to an audience. And, and then the feeling is, is a magical feeling. So, so you're adding to a bunch of neurons, you're adding an enormous amount of interactivity with the physical world, with the social world, with the interpersonal world, with the emotional world, ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. Uh, and, and, and magicians utilizing these, these interactive streams of information to create both conscious and to deny uh, conscious information that's actually going on in your body, right? And that's going on in your hands and your... Well, the conversations, I mean, here we are in, in uh, Gerald Edelman's library. And and so, you know, thanks to, you know, I went to college with, you know, David's older brother, uh, Eric, and he introduced me to Dr. Edelman. And so our conversations almost from the get-go were comparing this very strange thing. Yeah. I, I actually asked him to not talk about his theory of neuronal group selection mm. and, and rather talk about the actual physical interaction between antigen and antibody. Mm. The, the reason is because then we could compare the interaction between antigen and antibody to a magician doing a technique um, that was adaptable in front of an audience so that you have this kind of feed forward feedback effect. And, and one of the things that we always talked about is that if you're stunning, yeah, I said, is this an acceptable way of saying what you're trying to express? Which is, if I'm thinking of any organic process in terms of a feed forward effect or a feedback effect, that that um, that that basically I'm studying the process from the perspective of one of the parts of the system. Meaning but, the audience or and the magician. The audience or the magician, and 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 actually, okay. so if you like, so for instance, before I mentioned that in. In, um, when I hear a cognitive scientist talking, they they often, to me, have an expectation expectation, which and and that means that they're already thinking about the process in terms of one direction, right? So an expectation is a feed forward effect, right? But it's not a feed forward feedback effect. So so to to, to as my understanding from Dr. Edelman was that it was really really key that once you, to know when you were even had the possibility of talking about nature. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of any organic process was something that, that had to ha have feed forward and feedback at the same time. Mm -hmm. If it didn't have a place for both, mm -hmm. then it, it wasn't, it, it could be an interesting point about nature, but it certainly wasn't describing nature. Mm -hmm. it, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost proof that it's a cognitive idea describing nature versus nature itself, which by which has that that messier nature, that messier state of uh, specificity, if that makes sense. It, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, and one of the things we should clarify is, again, what antigens are and what antibodies are, and it's invasion and defense, right? Uh, so, yeah, but but even that's really interesting, right? Because from whose perspective are you saying that? From because from the antigen's perspective, mm -hmm. right? He's just an organism trying to 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 be alive as well. So once you take the full account of that offensive defensive, um, uh, you know, uh, who's the aggressor and who's the it's, protector? It's a perspectival thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so what right. what's one thing that's useful about magic is to be able to do those flips. 
you know, to, to instantly when we when you hear someone talking from one perspective, right? Like because even like if you hear a person um, like I debated in high school, and one of the techniques that we would use is, of course, you had to learn to argue every side of an argument. Right. Therefore, when you receive the arguments, you could be more empathetic with the person attacking you and hopefully come up with a, a better defense faster. Right. So, so I think this is also true of nature. If you're if you're only focused on the, the you know the, the direction see the directionality says that you're in the world of a consciously defined mind it says you're trapped in your mind it, it, almost by definition once you're in this more messy alive world like like you just talk to me and if I didn't talk back to you you would know that I wasn't really with you so let me ask you a question suppose you're a Freudian yeah and I'm constantly trying to read your unconscious right yeah uh, uh, and I have you know, let's say I'm a, I'm a good analyst, whatever. Uh, and, and so I have ideas, not about your consciousness, but really about what's driving your consciousness, what motivations, what troubles you had with mom, uh, whatever, uh, all those kinds of things. And, and now I have a very clear idea of your mind, but I have no idea whatsoever about your consciousness. Is that possible? Yes, but you're reminding me of the story of Procrustes, which would rip a complete hole in it, <laughs> right? Because the story of Procrustes is, right. is the story of, um, you know, um, a man simply on his way to a religious ceremony, and he's invited in to rest. It's a two-day trip, famously, outside of Athens. And he's invited in to Procrustes, and Procrustes invites him to, to lie down. And um, then he goes to sleep, and and then the man... Um, you know, comes in, Procrustes comes in with his magical tool set, which is a magical uh, device to stretch the person out, because what he does is he makes the person fit the bed, right? Because Procrustes is a, is a magician and a, a blacksmith, and he uses his magical blacksmith tools to either stretch the person out or chop the person in half to fit the bed exactly. Right. That's the first version of the story, but the much more, and that doesn't fit Edelman very well, but it does fit Freud very well, because you put a man in a couch and you define them. But there's another version of the story, which is actually Procrustes doesn't have one chamber with one bed. He has two chambers with two beds. And he puts the person, let's say they happen to match one of the beds perfectly, mm -hmm. and he puts them in the other bed. Because actually what Procrustes wants to do is kill mm. that person with his magical tool set by either stretching them out or cutting them off. His real intention is to kill, you know, the, the person. And so if you don't, if you're not aware of that in the Freudian context and you're, you're busy telling yourself a story, then you can believe that story because you're trapped in this world with one room. But the moment you have two rooms, right, now you have the ability to adapt. Now you have a magical thing known as repertoire. Once you have repertoire, you can adapt to that person that comes in. And even if he matches your bed exactly, you put him in the other bed. You don't care. And you get to do what you really want to do, which is to kill that person. And if you don't know about that other bed, then you don't know the intentions of that person. And this might be the trap of the Freudian analyst, which is he might be trapped with his own stories that he's telling himself. It also might be the trap of the modern consciousness researcher who's trapped in a conscious room by themselves in one room, not knowing about the other rooms that they don't have access to. Well, I think you've just described the process of science. And David and I had a conversation earlier 
uh, about the what you can call the bloody nose effect of doing actual science as opposed to anticipated science. You know, we all go in with great ideas. Oh, boy, you know, we're really going to prove this, or at least we're going to frame things a certain way. And then you walk into the laboratory and there's a brick wall and you get a bloody nose. And, and this process happens more than once. It happens over and over and over again. It's happening to me uh, right now, I'm sure, because you're posing interesting questions that I do not have a strict answer to, at least not yet. But it gives me something to think about. And, and what you end up doing, uh, I think, in, in real science is questioning your assumption and, uh, more and more and more. And you have to kind of back into an understanding of what you thought was a confined problem over here, but which in fact is a huge stack of contexts over here. And I noticed that you guys who are familiar with that process, horrible, bloody process, uh, that you're kind of nodding. Uh, so, so this is kind of the, if you will, the, the counter move to nasty old procrustes, uh, procrustes. Uh, isn't that a sort of a useful counter move? Wait, in what sense? In the sense that you keep on, well, my metaphor is different. Uh, my metaphor is, is getting a bloody nose on, on the brick walls, uh, and every single new experiment, maybe some of the old experiments, as a matter of, matter of fact, are, are brick walls where you get bloody noses, and you just kind of learn to wiggle around them. But if what you said is true, then the Dvorak keyboard would be used by everyone. You know, you know, just because you have something that's better, doesn't you know the keyboard that we're using now, the QWERTY, the QWERTY keyboard. Even though the computers advanced dramatically, we're using a keyboard that was designed consciously to slow us down to match the old manual typewriters. So the that keys wouldn't lock when they. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and the the more yeah. superior keyboard, you know, was simply not adopted because it's the, a magical time frame passed and we had moved on mm -hmm. and we'd forgotten about the Dvorak keyboard. So what you said, of course, is the intention of science and the hope for science, but it's certainly not the way that science is always done. Well, it, it, I think it is the uh, the untold story of of science. And, and I'd be curious because I see two people smiling at this. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd be curious. We, we were talking about Donald Knuth uh, a bit earlier, a famous computer scientist who had this great quote, uh, I have just uh, mathematically proven that this is you know true beyond you know, uh, so and then comma so make sure you try it out you know? <laughs> <laughs> because because you, you know, again and again like you know our you know right. um, Right. Uh, well, that's even part of consciousness, I guess. Right? It's the kind of idea. It's counterfactual. Kind of we we have ideas. We think this is the way things you know should be, and then our perceptions um, modify and, and you know guide those 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 predictions. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's uh, it's also part of the, the fun of science, right? In terms of, uh, of doing that. Yeah. And I, I I just wanted to quickly as well, like in terms of this kind of feedback and feedback for your you know profession and 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 work. Do you ever um, understand a, neuro, a neuroscience principle or a consciousness principle and then say, oh, I'm going to devise a mathematical, I mean, a, a magic trick, you know, based on this insight? Or is it more the other way, like, oh, this works as a magician. I wonder what the neuroscience behind why this works is. I could see it kind of going both ways, but I don't know if in the... No, it definitely goes both ways. In fact, one of the reasons why I enjoy the conversations with the neuroscientists is because of the... 
thinking about what the actual limitation is, right? So, because sometimes, like in any field, there's kind of assumptions. In fact, yeah. it's one of the things that I'm most, uh, I'm amazed by ability, the human ability to hold on to a story once it has a story, to cling to it in ways that I just find amazing. Yeah. And, and if anything, even taking advantage of that has been really fun. So, so it actually might be surprising in terms of some of the discoveries, like in terms of like the way people hold on to preconceived notions. Right. Um, and then, and then also, but then within that you find, so for instance, um, I, when I make things appear, so I should just demonstrate. So if you say, so, uh, there's a bunch of cards here and just, if you could just say a card, um, doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have I have a confession. I've okay. never gotten into card games. But that's right. No, <laughs> so no, but like, okay, you're not. This is not the first time, right? That this has happened. So what I want you to do is is you should know that there's cards that are aces that are very popular and said a lot. There's also cards that are face cards, yeah. and there's also numbers. So I would suggest because aces are so popular and we want to make it surprising that go with a face you definitely card. Definitely don't want to go with aces. Yeah. So go with a face card or a number. So you can have a jack, king, or queen, or any number between two and ten. Right. So which of those appeals to you? Um, the I cannot even visualize that's right playing, uh, playing cards uh will somebody help three of clubs this? the three of clubs oh, yeah. is okay so what i want you to do he wants the three of clubs and hold your hand out like this right and then i'm going to help you visualize the three of clubs just like that right Whoa. so it just appears <laughs> so so wow so <laughs> But so, the, and what would you just? Though? Well, what would that you have said? My fault. I should have said a different. That's right. Card, what, what should you have said? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Say. I, I should have said seven of diamonds, which is perfect. Yeah. So what I want you to do is, we'll take this card, and what I'll do is I'll show the cameras like so, and I'll place it in your pocket like this, yeah. and I want you to wave your hand over the top of the card and say unconsciousness. Unconsciousness. And slowly turn over the card in your pocket, and we can only hope that it's changed dramatically. In my pocket. So, and, so you want to be able to see it in my pocket? Yeah, and show. And I will. Everyone. No way! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, voila. So, this has got to be the luckiest night of your life. It's the luckiest. <laughs> it's never happened before. Uh, not no, but the history so, of humanity. But one of the things that I did learn was that um, in a sequence, it's hard to describe, but in that uh, certain things weren't needed, that you could cut to the chase and actually work a little faster. So that was really useful to me. In other words, it, once you accept that a physical narrative can also be a strong narrative just in terms of a story and you actually don't need all the extra, it, it actually allowed me to do a different kind of editing. And, and that kind of thinking actually came out of these long talks. So basically, I would come to, to the Neuroscience Institute every three months over a, like an eight-year period. And in those conversations... That, that's one of the things, uh, it would, and we'd have a lunch, with, I'd have lunch with David, and we'd have with all these guys that thought about epistemology and action, and uh -huh. that made me think about that, and it did modify my tricks, because I was thinking like, oh, minds don't need that complex verbal story. You know, they, what they need is they need something dramatic to happen, and they know it when they see it. So it, it's drama that captures people. Well, you, I mean, obviously when you talk about this in a survival environment, that's like novelty. And I did think a lot about firing people's amygdalas, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of a, a strange way for a magician and, to and think. that's fear. No, actually, and, and it was actually Eric 
who taught me that that's not the way that Dr. Edelman thought about it. He thought about in the older definition. So, so if you're talking to, and I've had long talks with Joe Ledoux about this at NYU. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's one way of thinking about it. But another way is to think about the amygdala connected to the five Fs, fight, flight, feed, freeze, and fornicate. Then what you get, if you think about those and take it outside of a directional context, mm-hmm. so if even in fight or flight, you're thinking about direct feed forward or feedback by itself, but you're not thinking about interaction of an organism in an environment. When you think about fight, flight, feed, freeze, and fornicate, you have a repertoire to interact with novelty that you discover in your environment that could help you. So and and in and, and that whole way of thinking about the amygdala and short-term decision, this probably came out of my discussions with Stuart Firestein. Um, about um, the amygdala and olfaction, mm-hmm. but but what it, what I came up with was this whole idea of it's actually it's a tactical repertoire, and yes. and actually when you when you meet a woman that you love or a man that you love when you're a young person mm-hmm. and then that might take years for you to fulfill, but there's a part of human there's a it, some of this is actually very long term thinking where that's very directly tied to your amygdala. So um, I mean I, I I can't prove it. I'm not a biologist, but mm-hmm. um, To me, the the way that Eric and then Dr. Edelman explained amygdala to me was actually very different and got outside of this fear-based context. Yeah. So is amygdala paleocortex? Uh, I mean, it has ancient analogs, you know. uh, I I wouldn't uh, say, I don't think... but the reason I... The hippocampus is here. uh, uh, Amygdala is there... And hippocampus is paleocortex, right? Yeah. And so this little doohickey in front of the hippocampus, each side. Uh, So we're not sure. I mean, the reason I have a bit, so the amygdala has at least 13 different nuclei within it, each having different afferents. And, you know, so so it sort of does, you know, a lot um, lot of But the wiring is not... But like, and I, I see it more as sort of like that. It's like this is important for me to survive or reproduce. You know, it's sort of fear. But I mean, it's basically it's like salient. Right. Yeah, it's like is is this something that I should pay attention to? Mm-hmm. Because of, and those are the biological imperatives, right? To survive and 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 to to, to reproduce. Right? But in these discussions, there's actually I remember now it was at a dinner with Stuart Firestein and Avery Gilbert when I was talking about this kind of explosive quality that you just experienced, like when when you do the magic tricks, because basically you're setting something up. Off, right, and and you know that's not so well defined. And and looking at these neurocorrelates, because one thing that's so interesting, just like we were discussing before, but big data, this wow can be set off by a discovery. But the interesting thing is, then of course, to a magician, we can use that discovery to cover something else up, because mm-hmm. we can also. The, the first phase is understanding the wow, right? Yeah. But then we can also use that wow to eliminate all kinds of things. But it's a very, it's a very like powerful experience, right? You yeah. challenge my reality. I, I thought, well, you know, like my, you know, my brain is flooded with the activity uh, trying to understand what just happened. Right. Because it, because it, you know, violated it all my expectations. Like, yes. how does he do that? What, that, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, it's very enjoyable, actually, that kind of sensation of, of being completely befuddled and, and, uh, kind of puts you uh, mm-hmm. on high alert. You know, like oh, I don't really want to. But understand. can you see? Okay, and, but uh, but it's kind of an open question. Can you see why with that de- that other 
you know, with that uh, that 5F meaning of the amygdala in terms of all that tactical response, then you start to get into this really interesting thing of not just reproduction salience, because certainly, uh, you know, the, the feed mechanism, you know, is is definitely about just survival in general, not mm-hmm. reproduction, right? And, and, um, and freeze could actually help you in a fight situation if you can... I was just with a, a, a primitive... Uh, a, a, a tribe, uh, Amazonian tribal chief that was in town in New York for the um, uh, Indigenous Peoples Conference at the UN. And he was talking about that his tribe, it's not the Runa people, but it's next to the Runa people in the Ecuadorian rainforest, mm-hmm. that they teach each other to rub, um, in, in old battle technique, they would rub themselves with wood and bite the stick, and that's how they would become invisible. But then, then we found out that the, the, the it was they were actually making a kind of primitive uh, camouflage, and the stick was allowing them to breathe silently. So at first, it seems kind seems of like, yeah. Huh. So so that's one thing I'd love to explore more with mm-hmm. the anthropologists and and. Um, but you see, it's like the, you can think reproduction or you can think just fear, but actually you can also. I, I, and again, I'm not a biologist. I. I can't talk about the neural correlates of of magic, but all I can say is guys like Avery Gilbert said, you should check out the amygdala. And when I had long talks with Joe Ledoux about it, he seemed to think that there was something there. Mm-hmm. But it's we've not done research on this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think you could certainly quantify with fMRI sort of, was that a good trick or bad trick? Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. My brain would respond very differently to if I was impressed versus not. If you could actually sort of gauge your effectiveness as a magician with, with and a, as a magician, of my brain. We also have a technology called foveated coupling, right? So our eye, the foveated part of our focusing, you know, is aligning and coupling. So in real time, I'm getting information whether I'm getting a wow. So and even if the person- Eye contact, basically. Yeah, but but in the same way, if a person gives you a vulgar gesture, if they're not looking you in the eye, you can't tell whether or not it's sincere. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's basically- So it's a it modifies, deeper... it, uh, the eye contact modulates the gesture or vice versa. Uh, it's It contextualizes hmm. and it, hmm. uh, it, it's a part of the interdependent frame that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And and it takes, instead of like words, which take so long, it can happen in hundreds of milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Can, yep. can AI uh, things do it in terms of, uh, are they technology advanced enough for, uh, for me? That's a whole question. I mean, that's really interesting. Can a robot do, you know, because it gets into robotics and the AI. And I don't know if those experiments have been done. I mean, and, and also this deception models don't really exist. You know, it's kind of an awkward space for cognitive science deception, right? Because they kind of like the idea that they see things as they are, it, right? Yeah. And so it kind of rocks the boat a little bit. So here's my question, because I've been thinking about this whole issue of real, realism and, um, and fantasy, basically. Uh, deception being one source uh, of mismatch with reality. And during the waking, period of the conscious brain, uh, we have to be reality-focused to a considerable extent, although there are all kinds of mistakes, of course, that we make. And one of the reasons why we make a mistake is because we grow up as babies in jungles, right? And jungles are full of camouflaged animals and threats and, you know, mosquitoes that that cause pain, uh, snakes that are hidden underneath, people who mean us harm, uh, all those kinds of things. So so the world inherently, the natural world, is hyper-complex, uh, and we need to make se- enough sense out of it to be able to survive or 
run to mommy or something like that, because our guardians are so important in the first 10 years, of course. Uh, and also, uh, by virtue of the fact that we were evolved creatures, uh, by virtue of that fact, uh, we also have um, reproductive aspects that are inherently, they're not separable from survival. Uh, they are part of the same package. Um, and and that is, you know, uh, one, to me, plausible hypothesis is that our overgrown brains, uh, because we have more brains than we strictly need uh, in order to survive and reproduce. And so we have our overgrown brains, and, and that might be a reproductive signal of some kind, at least in some contexts. You know, sometimes it's better to have a smaller head so you don't get hit, you know, by the rock Less being thrown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and sometimes, for some strange reason, uh, the trade-offs work the other way. And it's not at all obvious why human beings have heads on top of their bodies uh, where anybody, you know, can shoot an arrow uh, at our heads and, and we're dead. Uh, so, so the, the, all these trade-offs are, are interesting, very important. Uh, all I'm trying to say really is that reproductive advantage is not really that separate from survival advantage when you look at it. The, the one cautionary tale that I'd add, and you, but you can probably define this, when I was talking to your dad, he'd often bring up, if we tell an evolutionary biology story, mm -hmm. there is a tendency towards telling just so stories. Right. That, sure. Because part of accepting the feed forward and feedback is to accept just like in the uh, in the discovery of the structure of um, antibodies was was accepting this other kind of specificity yes. that wasn't so linear and determinist. Mm -hmm. So when when we start telling linear determinist stories, then I go back to now we're doing the feed forward or the feedback stories in the without the context of the other. So, so then I always hesitate to tell. Oh, we're we're like this because of that. And actually, ten thousand years ago, we were scared of that, so we did that. And those kinds of stories to me are a bit. You know, how do we? It's certainly not scientific. It's it's just ourselves telling ourselves stories that, well, in the context that we're in, make us feel better. But they're not necessarily rooted in any kind of scientifically observed empiricism. Right. But then, then in the process of bumping into brick walls. Uh, just about every time you walk into the laboratory, or every time you read a journal, for that matter, uh, and here's another bump, and there's another bump, and so on. And I think we become somewhat wiser uh, in that process, so that I think we begin to have some insights, I hope, uh, into what I would like to call reality. Um, and I, I think reality is definable as that which we don't expect, uh, that which uh, challenges us. And so we have to change in order to adapt, or, or maybe we'll just, you know, kill the, the, the brick wall that's bothering us today. Uh, but that's a rather extreme uh, version of that. It does happen all the time, as we know, of course, in human history, right? But I think it is an aspect that sort of links antibodies and antigens and neurogenes yes. in that the, the DNA hasn't changed very much in 10,000 years and stuff, but the demands of, you know, has. So, you know, uh, I would think of reading Mm. is only 5,000 years old, 5,200 years old. So most of humans it's, have it, never read a single word. The brain isn't built for it's reading. It's actually less than uh, uh, 5,000 yeah. because and, but, our 
direct ancestors uh, may not have been able to read, yeah, even yeah. going back a few even generations. Just even few generations, exactly. Right. So, so that, that's where I think like um, immunology and neurology have this sort of like great, um, you know, adaptability, flexibility to just like you said, sort of to to re react to a vast array of of um, possibilities, but with the you know, 10,000 years of blink of an eye in evolutionary terms, like, like, like DNA and those epigenetic changes mm -hmm. and stuff. But by and large, it's still the Stone Age brain in the computer age world sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we pull it off. I mean, we spend enormous amounts of our waking hours interacting with words and symbols and stuff and, right. and our joys and sorrows, happiness and all. You know, it, it's not hunting and gathering berries. It's it, it shifted, you know, in terms of the demands. But you know, we, we've kind of pulled it off, you know, as a species. We, we use our brains for completely different moment-to-moment -moment things than we did um, 10,000 years ago. And so that part is super changed. And then some things you wonder what hasn't changed in terms of our basic sense of happiness, fulfillment, relationships, I think maybe hasn't changed so much in 10,000 years right. in terms of what we, you know, the essence of what makes us human and what we strive for to be, you know, um, liked and safe and, and loved and, you know, uh, having resources. Uh, it just, it just got me a fascinating mixture of sort of, of uh, adaptability and stable, um, Exactly. Yeah. So, David, you've I, been thinking. Well, I've been thinking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, I think perhaps a, a really important and, I mean, a, a particularly relevant question to ask at this point is, in a world of selectional milieus, milieus in which, you know, a repertoire meets some selection, some event, Right, and that event pressures puts pressure upon, or does something that essentially weeds out or selects from that repertoire. In that kind of a world, what constitutes a match? And that's a that's a that's a, a question that applies across the board. It applies across the board in immunology, right? And the the definition of match, as we know from you know my my relatives, you know, work changed the definition of a match in terms of what people were willing to abide in the nascent science of immunology in the late 50s right, and early right, 60s. Yeah. Back in the in the not so good old days, uh, a match was literally a lock and a yeah. precise lock and key fit. Right. Right. And that right. proved to be not only wrong, but actually kind of limiting in a weird way because the new definition of match is you know whatever worked at a given point in time and it didn't have to be perfect as long as the antigen bit the dust mm -hmm. okay and so what that means is that opens up a new world of possibilities mm -hmm. because now an antibody doesn't necessarily only match one thing or only fit one thing mm -hmm. it's not exactly a, ma a skeleton key or whatever it's not a master key, you know but it can fit a number of different things. So there's this degeneracy of, of, of possibilities, a degenerate number of possibilities, different ways forward. And that and that actually is kind of a force multiplier in terms of the repertoire of these kinds of systems, the selectional systems. It's dramatically more powerful than a perfect match because you think, oh, wow, in a world in which antibodies or whatever it is we're trying to match with right. aspects of that world are, mm -hmm. have to be perfect and nothing else will suffice. Wow, you'll come to a moment in time when it's like, oh, she didn't fit. <laughs> and, and yet they can't be too promiscuous. They can't be and too that promiscuous. doesn't work either. That doesn't work either. Yeah. But that and, is, and it's true in both directions, it's right? It's true in both directions, yeah. right? 
And it's not just a metaphor, it's actually quite powerful. And I th and this is something that really doesn't keep me up at night, I must admit, but it does make for some interesting thoughts that I have in the morning when I, when, when I wake up and I'm sufficiently with it and aware. Conscious. Um, conscious, right? I was trying to avoid that. But um, that, that I think uh, about that and, and how powerful that notion is across not just the realm, the various levels and realms of biology, levels of biological organization from gene transcription all the way on up through protein translation, through the immune system up to the brain and into these vast ecosystems like rainforests and island biogeographies um, and all this, it goes beyond that. I mean, if you want to get into the world, the social domain, the world that we construct as humans, let's just take that as an example, well, maybe you know maybe there's a place for this kind of thinking there and that's not an original idea in in, in the least in a sense i think people who use the term meme right and dan dennett throws this around a lot he actually talks about the evolution of memes and he right. he talks about sort of this idea that it's emulating a darwinian progression that's mm -hmm. sort of a darwinian says so that's not new that idea isn't new but i think what is new and what i would suggest is is for new and maybe is a good place to kind of and you know the dialogue here is the notion that that may represent um, a new kind of a science that that the, the the science a science in which you you look at uh, how the world is organized not just the world of biology but the greater world outside of the the extra biological as well and you come up you know obviously these systems in their details are going to be different. But the themes and the overall, you know, what, what is actually sort of going on still involves this really sort of weird mesh and this, mesh and this weird redefining of the term fit or, or match. Yes, and I'm going to try to summarize this yes. uh, in one sentence, if I'm lucky. Uh, and that sentence would be uh, consciousness and biology are not just a matter of a lock and a key. Mm. And I think that might even uh, get us all to sing the same, sing from the same hymn book here. Uh, but if it doesn't fit, I'm sure to hear about it. Uh, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, this is Unconsciousness, a series. Uh, I'm Bernard Bars. My guests are Mark Mitten, uh, Jay Geed, and David Edelman. And thank you so much. Uh, thank this you. Great deal of fun. Thanks. For Pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. To show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course... Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, 
please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S.com. And thank you for listening.